Well, I think you would agree it's been another uh, crazy week around the world, right? The world is unsettled and uh, terrorized by, by evil people with twisted minds and hardened hearts and perverted theology. From Istanbul to Orlando, from Dallas to Nice, the recent stories of, of tragedy continue to come with, this, with this, current, this, this common theme of injury and death and pain. And our country is filled with unrest and uncertainty as well. I was reading uh, an article this week in USA Today. Uh, the title of the article was, How to Take Care of Yourself in a Messed Up World. That's from USA Today. And of course, that was right after four stories on Pokemon Go and explaining how to play. <laughs> Behind the headlines are people who are hurting, heavy with, um, with burdens, hearts filled with grief, bearing their loved ones, recovering from not only physical but emotional wounds, and certainly asking the question, why? As believers in troubled in, in any time, but in troubled times, we have tremendous opportunity not to accentuate the issues, but to point people to the answer of Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity in our country and around the world with people who are very unsettled and people who are very uncertain to speak a message of clarity and calmness and peace and tell them about one who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them on a cross. Psalm 147 says this, God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars and he calls each one by name. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. His understanding has no limit. Great is the power of our Lord. Mighty his power. His understanding has no limit. And then down to verse 10. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor in the delight of the legs of men. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So before we look into God's word, let's just pray uh, for those around our world. Uh, pray that they'll be surrounded by believers who can point them to Jesus Christ and there find hope in his unfailing love. Father, we, we live in a world that is chaotic, unsettled, uncertain. But we know you, God of eternity, God who never changes, the God who always has our best interest at heart, the God who is always at work in our life, the God who never wastes our time. And we pray, Father, that we would not get sucked in to the panic, that we wouldn't get sucked into the uncertainty, but we could stand above that, speaking clearly your message of hope, the message of your unfailing love. We pray for those who are mourning today. And we ask, Lord, that you surround them with people who know you, and can encourage them, not with just nice little sayings, but with, the, but with the truth of your word. 
with the truth of your person. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring comfort and you would bring healing. And you would use human tragedy for eternal purposes. And we just ask, Lord, that, uh, that you speak to people and that you speak to us today. And you help us be those who always clearly put forth the message of Jesus Christ to a world desperately needing to hear a message of certainty. Be with us, fathers, who look at your word today. Teach us as only you can do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 46 as we continue our way through the book of Genesis. We're going to look at chapters 46, 7, 8, 49, and 50 today. We're going to end the book, go to the end of the book, and then next week we're going to do an overview, a recap of the things we've learned through our study in Genesis. While you're finding the passage, let me set the context of what is going in in this last section of the book. Jacob had a favorite son named Joseph, and his preferential treatment did not set well with the brothers. You remember, they took Joseph, the brothers did, and they sold him into slavery and told his dad that wild animals had killed him. So all these years, Jacob thought his son Joseph was dead. Joseph was sold into slavery. He went to Egypt. He was bought by Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian official. He managed Potiphar's house. He always rose to the top. You always see his leadership gift. He's managing uh, Potiphar's house. Things are going well. But then some false accusations by Potiphar's wife lands him in prison. From a beautiful palace to a damp dungeon overnight, uh, Joseph finds himself. There he's able to interpret some dreams. Finally, he's able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh that allows him to rise to second in command. And he manages all of Egypt. He's a leader in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Through seven years of plenty, he is able to store the crops. And then the famine hits. And because of Joseph's first God working in his heart and, and God working to give him the leadership capability and skills, he is able to feed the country of Egypt during the famine and the surrounding countries. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, Jacob and his sons are starving. They're experiencing the famine as well. And so Jacob finally says, hey, go to Egypt and try to get us some grain. You guys remember that story? They go to Egypt. Uh, Joseph reveals himself. He sees the brothers. He reveals himself. He forgives them. He invites them to come and live in Egypt. And the brothers and the entire family, there are 66 of them at this point, go back from Canaan to Egypt. Look at chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. It's always interesting, even though, you got to think about this, Jacob has been told by God, you're going to go back, you're going to go to Canaan, you're going to have this tremendous descendant, it's going to be like the stars in the sky, going to be like the sand on the seashores, it's going to all happen in Canaan, but what's he find himself doing now? He's leaving Canaan, and he's got to say, God, what in the world are you doing? taking me back to Egypt? You promised everything was going to happen here. But in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his questions, what does Jacob do? He worships. 
offered sacrifices to God. And when we worship, even in the midst of our confusion, God speaks most clearly to a worshiping believer. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. He replied, I am God, the God of your father. He said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I'm going to make you into a great nation there. I'll go down to Egypt with you, and I'll surely bring you back again. And Joseph, your own, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. It's amazing as we've studied Genesis throughout Jacob's life, God appears to him even when Jacob is headed the wrong direction. God's hand is on him. God reminds him over and over. Four major times in his life, God reminds him, I am with you. Remember, he stole Esau's birthright and he had to, his brother's birthright and he had to run for his life. His first night on the run, God came to him and said, I'm your God. I am with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. When he went to Mesopotamia and he married Leah, not his first choice, Rachel and Rachel, Laban's uh, daughters, and he escapes from Laban. Laban is coming after him, remember? And God meets with him and says, Laban, don't touch him. You got to protect him. You got to watch over him. God was always with him. When he's getting ready to meet Esau, that brother that he had stole the birthright from, he thinks Esau is going to kill him. But God meets with him the night before. Remember, they wrestled together. And God says, I'm your God. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. When they get into Canaan, there again, God says, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Over and over, God reminds Jacob of who he is, how he's working in his life. Don't be afraid going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bring you back to Canaan. Here, here's a first principle or lesson we can learn from our past today. There are going to be three of these. Here's the first one. God confirms his presence and his promises with his people. God continues to do that. He did that in Jacob's life. He continues to do that in our life. God confirms his presence. I am with you. I won't leave you. I'm always going to be with you. Even the dark times, even the challenging times. Here are my promises. I don't go back on my promises. I don't renegotiate those. My promises are true. He confirms his presence and his promises with his people. If, if, um, if people were to chart the Christian life, there are like these three views of the Christian life, if we were to chart them. The first one says, um, here I, I come to Christ. And after I come to Christ, my life just shoots up like that. Man, it's fantastic. Everything works out well. No problems, no issues. And if there is an issue, it's just because I don't have enough faith, right? Or I'm not giving enough to a particular ministry. If I just give some more, if I have some more faith, my life's going to keep shooting up. This is, this is called prosperity gospel. And uh, it not only is wrong, it is a heresy. And there are many people today way away from the Lord, if they were ever believers at all, because of this theology. There's a second one, and this is called the second work of grace. This is the way I grew up. So here you're a Christian, you come to Christ, and you just kind of meander down here for a while. Could be six months, it could be a year, it could be 10 years. 
And then you get the second work of grace. When I grew up, uh, you not only went to the altar to be saved, but you went to the altar to be sanctified. Anybody else here like that? A few of you. Some therapy will help the twitches go away, I promise you. So you meander down here for a while, and then all of a sudden there's a second word, boom, you shoot up to a whole nother level, and you don't even sin anymore. You live a perfect life after that. It's amazing how that doesn't work. (laughs) There's a third view, if we were to chart it, and uh, it's what we've been seeing throughout Genesis. This is what we see in our life. We come to Christ, and we start this journey. Sometimes there are some great times that happen, and we stay up there for a while. Sometimes there are some tough times, and we stay there for a while. Over the long haul, we see this growth in our Christian life. And that's what we've seen in the life of Jacob. That's what we see in our lives. Not perfect. There's no second work of grace that shoots us up to another level. We have seen in... Jacob's life, and we see in our life that God continues through those, through those high times and through those low times. He continues to confirm his presence. I am with you even when it's dark. I am with you even when we're enjoying the mountain time. My promises are true. I'm not going to go back on them. God confirms his presence and promises with his people. By the way, That's why we need to be in God's word every day. That's where his promises are found. That's why we need to be reading his word. By the way, a lot of you have been reading his word for a long time. You probably are not going to to see anything new. That's okay. We need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. We're going to take communion. Many of you have taken communion before. Communion is not a one and done. Jesus says, do every time you do this, do it in what? Remembrance of me. You're remembering me. You're being reminded of my promises. You're being reminded of what I've done. The Christian life is about being reminded of what God has done in our life. So Jacob, on his way back to Egypt, look at verse 28. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, uh, go back to 28. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead to... uh, to find Joseph, to get directions to Goshen. Could have looked on his phone, could have just plugged it in, but he just went and got directions. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready, and he went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Check this out. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father, and he wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Man, just just think about those verses for a while. They haven't, the last time, the last time Jacob saw Joseph, he had told him to go check on the brothers in the field. Anyone know how long ago that was? 23 years. Most of those years he thought that his son was dead. 23 years. Our daughter uh, one of our daughters just got married this past weekend and we had our family in. And man, it was so cool to have your family around and see, and see the kids and spend time with them. And then they all went back home and Lori and I have been in recovery uh, this week. I can't, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine 
not seeing your kids for 23 years. And here they embrace. And they wept for a long time. That's Moses who wrote this way of saying, it's like they never would stop embracing. They just kept hugging each other and crying. They were so happy to see what God had done and God had brought them together. Now I want you to see what happens next. I want you to see uh, uh, Joseph's wisdom and discernment here. You remember when his brothers had first uh, come to him, he had met them, he revealed himself to them, he let them know who he was, said he, you know, he wasn't gonna kill them, bring them back, bring the whole family uh, back to Egypt. And um, Pharaoh got word of that. And Pharaoh said, yeah, yeah, bring your whole family back. That's fine. In fact, give them the best of the land. And, and Pharaoh said, you can give them the fat of the land. So when they came back, Joseph had them go to an area outside of the cities in Egypt, an area called Goshen. He had them go there for two reasons. One, it was a great place to raise livestock. And secondly, it was away from the city where all the pagan influence and culture would have been on a day-to-day basis. Joseph does not want to put his family right in the middle of the city where all the gods are, where all the influence are, and where all the paganism is. You know, put them out in an area by themselves. Some other lessons there we could learn, but it's cool that he wants to get them away from the pagan influence. But that was his idea. So he needs Pharaoh to rubber stamp the idea. So he brings his brothers in front of Pharaoh. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 47. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Goshen, or came from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. I wonder which five he chose. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it, to know? But no doubt, he chose those who would make the, he thought would make the best impression to Pharaoh. And he gave him some coaching. He said, they don't like people who work with sheep. Don't tell them you're shepherds. Tell them you're herdsmen. Look at verse three. Pharaoh asked his brothers, what's your occupation? Your servants are shepherds. What in the world <laughs> were they thinking about? We don't know why they said that, but they didn't take Joseph's advice. God overrules it. So Pharaoh says, okay, that's fine. Go tend your sheep. In fact, he says, Joseph, if there's anyone who has some special skills, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brings his dad, Jacob, this great patriarch, before the most powerful man on the earth, Pharaoh. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh said, how old are you? Verse nine, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they don't equal the years of the pilgrimage of my father. And then Pharaoh didn't bless Jacob, but what happened? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He went out of his presence. The years of my pilgrimage have been few and difficult. This kind of sums up Jacob's life. Compared to his father, Isaac, who lived to be 180, compared to his grandfather, Abraham, who lived to be 175, he said, my days are few, and they've also been difficult. That word translated difficult in the NIV is the Hebrew word raw, 
and it's better translated bad, evil, distressing. That's how Jacob summed up his existence. Deceiving his brother, running for his life, deceived by Laban, the tension between Leah and Rachel, hatred among his son to the point that one of them would sell a brother into slavery, the death of Leah, the death of Rachel, what he thought to be the death of Joseph. Just follow, follow Jacob's story through. It is amazing how many times he's either running for his life, he's afraid he's going to die, or he's anticipating his death. Death was always on his mind. My days have been few and evil. They've been few and distressing. And think about how sobering that would have been to the brothers when they heard their dad say, my days have been few and bad because they knew that their actions had certainly played into some of the distressing times that he had experienced. But through it all, he worshiped God. Through it all, even when he messed up, God was with him. Aren't you glad that God works with messed up people? He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Jacob lived in Egypt for another 17 years. He died at the age of 147. And he wanted to go back and be buried in Canaan. He wanted to be buried in this cave burial cave where Abraham and Sarah were buried, where his father Isaac and Rebekah had been buried, where he buried Leah. Remember, Rachel, his favorite wife, uh, had died uh, giving childbirth to Benjamin, and she had been buried around Bethlehem. He wanted to go back. So after he died, after Jacob died, Joseph had him embalmed. It's interesting. He had him embalmed by his own physicians. He didn't give him to the embalmers of, uh, of Egypt. They probably had some pagan things that, that Joseph didn't want to happen to his father. So he has him embalmed by his own physicians. That's a 40-day process. And then they mourned him for 70 days. Those days overlapped. And then Pharaoh thought so highly of, of Joseph and his family that Pharaoh sends this huge entourage, these, these, these Egyptian dignitaries, all the way back to Egypt to go to the funeral to bury Jacob. Tremendous, uh, just think about that, this huge parade going back, honoring this man, uh, Jacob, and all the Egyptians are there as well. Well, after the family returned to Egypt, Joseph's brothers got a little nervous. Now our father's dead, and Joseph, he was just pretending to forgive us. Our dad's dead, he's going to get us now. Look at verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him, we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of God, of, your, of the God of your father. And when their message came to Joseph, what did he do? He wept. His brothers didn't understand the sincerity of his forgiveness. They didn't understand the depth of his forgiveness. Not surprising 
that they probably couldn't understand that because of the lives they led. But Joseph goes to them. He wept. Look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That's not, a, that's not some Bible verse that Joseph memorized during vacation Bible school. He experienced that. He lived that out. He knew what rejection was like. He knew what betrayal was like. He knew what being falsely accused was like. He knew what being forgotten in prison was like. He knew the harm that people tried to put on him, and he knew that God used it all for his purposes. Another lesson we learned, God weaves together all our life experiences to fulfill his perfect plan. I just want you to know this morning, I don't know what you're going through. Some of you are going through some tough stuff. But God never wastes our time. He never takes a break from working in your life. He is using everything, the good and the bad, the elation and the pain, the joy and the sorrow, all your life experiences. He's using them to fulfill his perfect plan. And you can trust him. You can depend on him. You can hand over your pain of rejection to him because he's going to use it in some way to work it out for good. You, you can turn over the bitter feelings that you are experiencing toward other people who have hurt you because God is working those things out for good. Do other people to, intend to harm you? Yeah. Is God in charge? Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know the purpose of your pain. I don't know the purpose of your pain, but here's what I know. I know there is a purpose to your pain. And I know that God knows what the purpose is. And he's using it all to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. That uh, Romans chapter 8 verse we use a lot, right? For God works all things together for good to those who love God called according to his purpose. We get that. That's great. And we often apply it to a lot of the details, a lot of the stuff going on in our life. And, and that's, that's a, an appropriate application but there's a bigger application. If you look at Romans all through that area of Scripture, Romans 8 is talking about what? We're talking about our salvation. We're talking about what God has done. Talking about God's sovereign work in our lives. So that's the last thing I'd like us to see here. The greatest thing that God works out for good is our salvation. See, everything else is kind of lower shelf. Now we're talking about eternal stuff. And when God saves us through Christ, when we are in Christ, when we are covered with Christ, when we are protected by Christ, then we are safe. Remember with two S's, we are significant. We don't have to look for significance in a job or money or in stuff anymore. All those things come and go in our life. We are our relationship. We are significant in Christ. We are secure Man, you look at the world, read, 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 the, 
Read the headlines. This is not a secure place to live, is it? But in Christ, we are secure for eternity. Nothing can separate us from his love. We're accepted. You don't have to be a people pleaser anymore. You don't have to worry what people think about you. You don't have to change like a chameleon on Monday morning in the business world so people will accept you there and speak the language they speak and tell the jokes they tell and and do all the stuff they do and make the promises of the business. You don't have to do that anymore because your acceptance is not with your job, it's with Jesus Christ who is overseeing all those things in your life. You're forgiven, finally forgiven. The relief, the burden is gone. And the eternal God who knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know chooses to forget your sin. He will remember your sin no more, Scripture says. Separates it as far as east is from the west. Puts it behind his back. Throws it in the depths of the sea. He's forgiven you. And he empowers us by his spirit. He allows us to be able to do everything he's calling us to do. We don't have to do it on our own. Sometimes we try and fail. But through God's spirit, we can do everything he's calling us to do. Before we uh, take communion, just a couple things uh, to wrap this up. I want you to see uh, two things here real quick. Turn back to chapter 49. In this chapter, uh, Jacob is blessing his sons. Some of them don't really look like blessings. He's, he's putting prophecies over them. And um, he does that to all his sons. But I want you to see his words to Judah. Uh, chapter 49, verse 8. He says to Judah, he's getting ready to die. His kind of his last words. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah, you are a, a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Here's the, here's the key verse in this prophecy. The scepter, the, the, the ruling staff, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation is his. Who's that talking about? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's hand from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of all the nations will be his. It's a messianic prophecy of the Old Testament right there in Genesis. One is coming. One is coming. All the nations will bow. Not not just a country, but all the nations are going to bow down. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1, real quick. Matthew chapter 1. There are two genealogies uh, for Jesus. uh, One found in Luke, one found in Matthew. Luke actually starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to to Adam and Eve. Matthew starts with, look at verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of who? Judah and his brothers. And it goes all the way down the lineage of Judah until we get, verse 6, to David, King David. He's part of the lineage of Judah, 
You keep on going. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ, the one you've been waiting for. He came from the tribe of Judah. And then in Revelation, just mark down Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. In that passage, as John is looking at this vision of heaven, there's a scroll that can't be opened. No one can open the scroll. The names of those who are, who are belong to God are in the scroll. No one can open it except one finally comes to open the scroll. Who is it? The Lion of Judah. The Root of Jesse, David's father. It's Jesus Christ that Jacob is talking about right here in Genesis chapter 49 as he gives his prophecy to Judah. And it's Jesus Christ that we remember today in communion. We remember what he has done for us. We remember how he has covered us. We remember his love for us and his sacrifice for us. We all know uh, what happened this past week around the world and specifically, I believe it was last Sunday or Saturday in Dallas. Five policemen were shot. There have been a lot of stories going out this week. I wanted you to hear one story from Shatima Taylor. She was one of the civilians shot during Thursday's deadly police ambush while they were having a very peaceful and appropriate march in Dallas. During an ambush, she was shot. Listen, listen to her story. We were standing on the corner getting ready to cross the street to go up to where my car was parked. And uh, we heard a shot and we all looked. We didn't know what it was, you know, like, because it's so close to the 4th of July. And we all kind of looked and um, it was a pause and it was a second shot. And the police officer, I saw him kind of tall, hefty, white guy bald. I remember seeing him. And uh, that second shot, he kind of, as he was going down, he said he has a gun, run. I felt the bullet. I don't know if it bounced off the ground or what, but I felt it when it hit me in the back of my leg. And um, my son, Andrew, had turned around to grab me. Because he didn't, I guess he turned around to see where I was and he went to grab me, but I had already been shot. So I grabbed, tackled him and um, pushed him into the street. And I think he hit the car and we ended up in between the car and the curb. And I just laid on top of him. And um police officers that started coming up the block. And one of them, I heard him when he said, is anybody hit? My son said no, because he didn't know I was shot. And I was saying yes, but I wasn't saying it loud enough so my son could hear me, because I didn't want him to hear me. And the officer said it again, kind of loud, and I said, yes, sir, I'm, I'm hitting my leg. And, and that officer jumped on top of me and covered me and my son. And there was another one at, the, at our feet and there was another one over our head. 
and there were several of them lined against the wall over there and they just they stayed there with us and I saw another officer I saw another officer get shot right there in front of me again that was two but they were able to get us up get me up help me to get me up and uh, put me in the back of the police car you know another officer was in the back of the car and my son and um, that bullet, that car was riddled with bullets. I'm so sorry that they lost their lives. But I'm thankful. I'm so thankful. What the police officers did in Dallas to save lives so Jesus has done in an eternal way. He, uh, he came to those of us shot up by sin, helpless, hopeless, just lying on the street, unable to save ourselves. And he came and he took on our sin. He bore our sin in his body on the, on the cross. And he covered us over. That's what the word atonement means, covering over. And he does that for eternity. And so when God looks at us now, he sees us covered by the work of Christ. He protects us from the judgment on sin. He took that wrath on the cross to the point where he said, my God, my God, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? His so wrath was poured out on him. He, he died so we could live. Scripture says, by his wounds we are healed. And so we, uh, we remember that awful death but like we heard Shatimia say, we are thankful. God would love us so much that he would do that for us. Communion is for believers only. It's not a time that we should do quickly. It's not a time where we hold the cup and think about what we're doing the rest of the afternoon. It's a time we focus on what Jesus has done for us. Communion is for believers only. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ, you're not for certain, you've trusted in Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with God, then just let the bread and the cup pass. No one will see, no one cares. But our plea with you today is to seriously consider where you are, unprotected, uncovered, shot by sin, Today, we encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ as the only way to have a relationship with the living God.